0: And where is your home? Is it the house or the building in which you live presently? Is that your home? What if all your loved ones who live with you right now were living somewhere else? And you were just in this building all by yourself. You're in your house all by yourself. Would it be your home? Well, I think we understand that home is where the heart is. Home is where the people we love are and where we belong where we love and are loved. And the actual external building can be different, and we can move from place to place. But home is always with those whom we love. And as sons and daughters of God, we were created to be at home with God. He made us not just to be some kind of creatures living distant from him. No, he created us to live in intimate communion and love Children, sons and daughters of the living God, living with the Father, at home with Him. What is eternal life? What does the Scripture say about eternal life? It is to know God the Father and God the Son, in God the Son. And knowing in the Scriptures more than just having this intellectual understanding, it is to have an intimate relationship with, to dwell with. Our home is with God. To know him, to be with him, to live in the light of his love, that's what we were created for. But what happened? Well, the children know what happened. It's there in Genesis chapter 3 what happened. We literally wrecked our home. We literally ran away and hid from our father. And we literally caused such destruction. That we were expelled from God's presence for our own good, so that we would not die forever. And so the whole Bible, the whole history of redemption, is the story of God working to bring us back home, to bring us back to Him. That's what the whole Bible's about. It's all kinds of stories and doctrines and teachings and poetry. But there's one message in the midst of it all, through it all, it's all saying the same thing. God loves his children. Yes, he loves his unworthy, sinful, dirty, ashamed children. He loves them with a fierce and a burning love, and he will never give up on them. He will wash them off and clean them up and heal them, and restore them, and reconcile them, and he will bring them home. That's what it's all about. And we're here in chapter 24 of the book of Psalms, and that's just one snapshot in this whole movie, in this whole stage, in this whole process. Sorry, it's just one stage in this whole process. In Psalm 24, it's most likely written when David was bringing the ark back into Jerusalem to its rightful place on the Temple Mount, where the temple would be built by his son Solomon. You remember the ark was taken by uh, the Israelites into battle. It was stolen by the Philistines, and it went around from city to city. Then it spent some time at different houses in Israel. Then David tried to bring it back to Jerusalem, but he did it the wrong way, and Asa died because he touched it. And finally, when Psalm 24 is written... Finally, they do it the right way. They bring the ark into the Mount Zion and David writes this song of celebration. It's not just a song about the ark coming to Jerusalem. It's also a prophecy of something greater. It's also pointing forward to the coming of the King of Glory into the into the glorious presence of the Father before the throne of the universe. And so we'll look at that in this psalm this morning. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. David's saying God is not one of these local little fake gods of the Philistines or of the Syrians or the Assyrians or Babylonians. God is God. He's the only one. He's God for the Jews. He's God for the Gentiles. He's God for all the nations. There is only one true God. The rest are all fakes. And the earth belongs to him. And everything in it, because he made it. Not just everything in it, but every one. Everyone must bow before the sovereignty of almighty God, creator of heaven and earth. And that's important. We live in a multicultural, pluralistic society where if you go to university and you share your faith, people say, that's really nice. That's really nice for you. And then they'll listen to the Buddhists share their faith and they'll say, that's really nice too, for you. And they will be delighted to hear what you believe until you say what I believe is the truth, and it's the only truth, and it's true for you. Whether you accept it or not, it is true for you. That's when the problems start. We have to learn from David here not to back away from the real reality, the true truth, that God is God. He is God of the believer. He is God of the unbeliever. He is God of every human being. And every man, woman, and child on this planet must bow the knee to him. If they don't do it now, they'll do it later. But they will do it. And so God has founded the world upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. You remember that he brought the earth out of water. At first he created the globe and it was just covered in water. It was was formless and void. And all of a sudden, he, he separated the, the water from the land. If you, if you would, or if we couldn't do that, but if God would make all the land the same level, then the entire world would be covered in water. The only reason there's land is because God plunged deep valleys in the seas and raised up huge sections of land to be mountains and continents, that if it was all flat, be covered in water. That's the way it was in Genesis 1. And then God said... This is where the land will be and this is where the sea will be and it will not pass its limits. We read about that in Job. We read about that in Psalm 104, that God says to the sea, this is your limit. But you remember that water in the Bible and seas is not just a reference to the actual physical material, that it's also a picture, a metaphor of the roiling and turbulent and rebellious nations. And that's also behind the words of our text that God sovereignly establishes his world despite all of the uproar. Of, think of Psalm 2 all the kings that rebel against the Lord and against his Messiah. Doesn't matter how much they scream and shake their fist. God is God, and Christ is king. So, having established the glory, the majesty, the sovereignty, the power of creator God, David asked this question, well, who can be in his presence? Who can come to live in his presence and say, this is my home, this is where I belong? Who can live with a God who is holy, holy, holy. That that question hurts, doesn't it? We shouldn't have to ask that question. It was the way things were supposed to be, that we were to live with holy, holy, holy God. The question that David is actually asking is who can go home? Who is allowed to come back home? And he speaks about ascending the hill of the lord that's important that ascending because throughout the scriptures god is often usually met on the mountain jerusalem mount zion where the temple will be built in a few years time after this psalm is written was an elevated area that's where the that's where god met with his people So what we're going to do for a few minutes here is just zoom back out from Psalm 24 and kind of see the overview of what happens from Genesis right through to our text with respect to the dwelling place of God. And I'm going to go pretty quickly here, so you have to look up the texts uh, quickly and, and, and really focus because I'm going to have to go... Uh, quite fast. So you remember Genesis chapter 2, there was the garden. It was a special holy of holies in the creation where man could walk with God and, and be at home with him. And it was full of, of fruits and trees and, and gold and precious stones, and there were rivers flowing out of it. Now, rivers, we know, children, rivers don't flow uphill, right? So if, the, if there were rivers flowing out of the garden, that means the garden was elevated and the rivers were going down out of it. And if we turn to Ezekiel chapter 28, we get a little picture. Ezekiel 28 is a very complex chapter, and there's a lot to say about it, but we don't have time to go into the details. But it's just one thing that I want to call your attention to in Ezekiel chapter 28, 13 and 14. Uh, The prophet is speaking about the king of Tyre, and he's speaking about his fall from grace. But I want you to pay attention to what he says about Eden. There are lots of other details to talk about, but we just want to see what he says about Eden. Look at verse 13, Ezekiel 28. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Saudis topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, crafted in gold were your settings, your engravings. So that's a picture of, of Eden. And look at, look at verse 14. You were anointed guardian, cherub, I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walk. So that's the connection I want you to see here, that Eden is connected in the scripture with a higher area, a mountain, the mountain of God, the Garden of Eden. And so this high place was a place of special communion with God. The idea was that that garden would grow. It would get developed. It would become bigger and bigger. Until finally, the entire earth would be a beautiful garden city with the rivers flowing through it, and the tree of life, and all kinds of gold and precious stones. The entire earth, a garden city, home for God and His beloved children to dwell in. Now, what does that make you think of? Well, isn't that described in Revelation? What we didn't, what we were supposed to do in Adam. Jesus does, Jesus prepares, and Jesus brings it all ready on the last day when heaven comes down to earth. So that was the idea. We didn't do it, Jesus will do it. But we messed up, and so we were driven out. And then the cherubim, the guardians of God's holiness, the cherubim are the special angels that tell sinners, hey, you can't come near to a holy God, stay away or you'll die. And God put cherubim at the entrance to the east of the garden. They were driven out, and we now live east of Eden. And then as we go through the historical record that the Scripture gives us, everything's dark. There's hardly any sparks of light as to... When can we come back home? How can we come back home? How can a sinner come back into the presence of a holy God? So what happens is that you see little moments. You see the patriarchs, they they meet with God on, on certain occasions. You see Jacob at Bethel. He has that dream of this ladder between heaven and earth, and angels going up and down on it, and this, this vision, this prophetic vision that one day something will happen, someone will happen, who will tie heaven and earth back together and make it possible to move between the two. But for much of the Old Testament, it's just so temporary, to, so occasional, especially in the time of the patriarchs. You think of Moses, for instance, in Exodus chapter 3, I think it is, he, he meets with God in the burning bush, and And God says, take off your sandals. The ground on which you are standing is holy. So that little area, temporarily, while God was present in that burning bush, temporarily, that becomes a little bit of paradise. And Moses has to take off his sandals. He's on holy ground. But once the burning bush thing stops, there's no more holy ground there. We have Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is a little longer, isn't it? It takes quite a bit of time. The people are, are camped before the mountain. Moses spends a long time on top of the mountain. He ascends the mountain. He's in God's presence. But it's only Moses, the rest of the people are dead scared. They tremble. Even Moses trembles. The people are terrified. They're not even allowed to touch the mountain unless they die. There is darkness and thundering and lightning. It is terrifying to be in the presence of a holy God. Moses hardly dares to go up into his presence, how much less the rest of the people. So what happens? What does God do? Well, God makes a safe way for people to kind of come near to him. He makes this, he tells Moses to make this tabernacle. And in this tabernacle will dwell the Shekinah glory, the presence, the glorious cloud of the presence of God in the midst of his people, but it will be behind a veil over the cherubim for the protection of the sinner. You remember that the tabernacle and later on the temple were oriented to the east. That's important. The doors were to the east, which meant that If you were going east, you would have your back on where the presence of God was. But when you were walking towards the presence of God, you were going west, back to the garden, back to the presence of the Father. So there he was, in the midst of his people, behind the veil, and embroidered on that veil, embroidered on that curtain were all kinds of cherubim, and those cherubim were saying, sinner, stay out of the presence of the holy God. And in that tabernacle, later on the temple, there was gold, there were precious stones, there were flowers, there were fruits. The tabernacle and the temple represented what we had lost, the garden in which we had intimate communion and fellowship with God, our home from which we were driven. And so so Moses makes the tabernacle. This is a way for the sinner to come back to God, kind of. But there's a problem. Look at Exodus chapter 40. If you open up your Bible to Exodus 40, there's a problem when he's finished with the tabernacle. Right at the end of of Exodus 40, verse 34, you see in verse 33 at the end, so Moses finished the work, then look what, what the problem is. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses, the most holy, righteous, beloved man of God and all the people of Israel could not enter because the glory was too much. And he was too much of a sinner. And so what happens? Well, if you look at the next chapter, which is Leviticus 1, the Bible goes through eight chapters of describing regulations about sacrifices and blood offerings. It speaks about the ordination of Aaron and his sons as priests with blood of sacrifice. And only after eight chapters of exquisite detail about these ceremonies, these bloody ceremonies, finally we read about people going in to the temple or to the tabernacle. So the point is, there is no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. Sinners cannot be cleansed and come into the presence of a holy God unless sin is paid for. And sin must be paid for by death. And so the tabernacle opens for business, but it's it's hard to get there. You've got to go through all kinds of ritual washings, all kinds of blood sacrifices, and then there are all these barriers. The Gentiles can only come up to here. The women can only come so far. The men can only come to this court. The priests can only come beyond this point, and beyond this point, only some priests sometimes can come into the holy place, and then when you get to the Holy of Holies, which represents the essence of the garden, only one priest can go in one time per year with the blood of Yom Kippur, the day of expiation, the day of atonement. He throws that blood on the ark, he turns around, and he flees. And as soon as he's done that, he's got to go right back to doing more and more and more sacrifices. It's never It's never finished. It's never enough. So let's go back to Psalm 24. This is the context in which we are are in. The temple hasn't been built yet. Everything's still kind of uh, intense. But this ceremonial system is more or less functioning. And David asks, well, who can ascend? And who can not just come in, but who can stand? Who can be there? In the presence of God. And David answers this, well, it takes more than just having your name on the membership list. It takes more than just saying, I am an Israelite, circumcised and born of an Israelite. It takes more than that. You need to have clean hands. What does that mean? You need to have external righteousness, a righteous and holy life without sin. But that's not enough you also need a pure heart because that righteous external life means nothing if your heart is inclined to love sin and you're just faking it. You're a hypocrite. You need a heart which is full of an inward love and commitment to God. Now, David understands that. David wrote Psalm 51 and in Psalm 51, he says, Lord, wash me, cleanse me from my sins. That's the clean hands. But Lord, I also need a new heart. I need a heart that doesn't love wickedness. I need a heart that doesn't love sinning against you. I need a heart and a life which loves and lives the truth. And then David says in verse 5, Well, that kind of a person will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. The clue here is receive. The blessing and the righteousness and the salvation are not things that we contribute. They are things we receive from God. The sovereign gifts of sovereign grace. And then David says, well, who is like this? Well, he says, these people. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Now, this is really, really tough. The last words there in verse 6, it's tough to translate. Well, it's not tough to translate, it's tough to understand. The Hebrew says this, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Jacob. That's what it says. Those are the words. In 99.9% of the Hebrew manuscripts, that's the way it is. And, and the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament tried to kind of explain it by adding in God of. Saying, well, who seek the face of the God of Jacob? Because everybody knows we don't seek Jacob. We don't seek Jacob. He's not our savior. It must mean we seek God. But this is, this is how the word goes. How the words go. Who seek your face. Jacob, and you can see why our translators try to to make it a little bit more understandable, going by some ancient manuscripts that try to do that. But why am I making a big deal about this? Well, because I believe that David is making a point here. Who can be in the presence of a holy God? We often read Psalm 15, we read Psalm 24, and we think, "Wow, no one." That's the point, isn't it? We're all sinners; we don't belong. We can't come into his presence. That is not what David is saying. He's saying, you know what? You know who has clean hands? You know who has a pure heart? You know who receives blessing and righteousness and salvation from God? You know who? Those who seek your face. And you know who that is? Jacob, your covenant people the people that belong to you, the people that you chose, they didn't choose you, the people that you brought near to yourself, who you chose for yourself. If you turn to Psalm 65, stanza 4, you'll see this happening, this exact dynamic. Psalm 65, 4, where the psalmist says this. He says, blessed is the one you choose. And bring near to dwell in your court. Who can come into his presence? The ones he chooses to set his love upon. To set his sovereign grace upon. The ones, look at verse 3, who are sinners. But when their iniquities prevail against them, God atones for their transgressions. So washed, forgiven, and sovereignly chosen sinners those who belong to God's people, God's covenant people with true faith, they they may, they must enter and dwell with God. And they live in confidence, not just in the New Testament. This confidence was already there for God's people in the Old Testament. Look at Psalm 26, which is just maybe on the same page or or the next page in your Bible from our text. And you read Psalm 26, you think, David, you wrote Psalm 51. You know you're a sinner. Why are you writing this stuff? You know tulip. You know the the reformed faith. You know total depravity. We learned it from you, David. But look what you're saying here in Psalm 26. Vindicate me, O Lord, I have walked in my integrity. Prove me, test my heart and my mind. I walk in your faithfulness. I don't sin. I don't sit with sinners. Look at verse 6. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord. I wash my hands in innocence. Look at verse 11. As for me, I shall walk in my integrity. David is absolutely sure that he owes nothing to God. He is holy. He is righteous. He is pure. He is acceptable. How in the world can David say this? Well, David can say this. Because in the tabernacle, later on the temple, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ was being preached over and over every day. The gospel which shed in the sacrifices and in the ceremonies of the law, you are a sinner. But that's not the end of the story. Because God washes away your sins. This blood is shed The payment is made. The animal dies in your place. God is a righteous judge. The animal died. He will not demand payment twice. Now, of course, each sacrifice was absolutely unable to do anything, which is why they had to come back and do another one every day. But this was a message. It was a sermon. It was a prophecy. God was telling them, listen, this all points to the day. When there will be blood shed to put an end to all shedding of blood. When there will be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. That's coming. And it's because that's coming that you can believe in the promises of the gospel that you see in these ceremonies and in these sacrifices repeated every day. And so when someone lived in covenant faithfulness with God in integrity, didn't mean to say they never sinned. What it meant is, is that they lived in humble reliance on the grace of God. And when they sinned, they knew where to go. They went to the tabernacle, they went to the temple, they brought the sacrifice, and they said, Lord God, I need someone to die in my place. And you've promised to do that, Lord. And you will fulfill your promises because you are faithful, and you are true. And because I know that, I know that my sins are all washed away. And I know that I am acceptable in your sight and in your presence. Now, that's Jacob. That's the covenant people of God. They may come in. They must come in. But look at verse 7. There is someone who doesn't have to ask permission. There is someone that doesn't have to go through all kinds of hoops and all kinds of rigmarole and ceremonies and sacrifices and all kinds of barriers to come into the very heart of where the presence of God dwells in the midst of his people. And who is that? Well, it's the master of the house. It's the owner. It's God himself. He doesn't have to ask for permission. He belongs there. It's his house. And so as the ark is brought into Jerusalem, they come towards the gates. David says, lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. I've studied as much as I could in the time I had about ancient gates and it's a pretty deep topic but I think possibly it may mean that these gates were raised vertically and when they're raised you would see the top of it above the city wall that could be one possible explanation not sure but the point is is that David is saying he's crying out for these massive gates to be opened to the city Because the ark must come to the temple mount. God dwells in the midst of his people. The temple's not there yet. It's just a tent. It's all kind of temporary, but it's still true. And yet, this is all a picture. All this Old Testament stuff, tabernacle, Mount Zion, the temple, the ark, the ceremonies, it's all a picture. It's not the end of the story, because a thousand years after this psalm was written, a little baby was born in Bethlehem. It was the very Son of God himself who came to live amongst us in the flesh. And if you turn to John chapter 1, I think it's verse 14, John chapter 1. What does the scripture say? And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth. That that word dwelt among us is the verb in Greek tabernacle. He tabernacled amongst us. He tented amongst us. And so when the Lord Jesus Christ arrives on the scene, all of the little pictures And the little models that were pointing to him suddenly became unnecessary and meaningless. That's why the temple was later destroyed. Because it is God himself in the flesh who tabernacles amongst us, who dwells in our midst. And we have seen his glory, says the apostle, where? Well, on on the Mount of Transfiguration, amongst other things, where they saw him shining with his heavenly glory for a few moments. But then what happened to this, this Lord of glory? Well, Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, the Lord of glory was crucified. That's who died on the cross. The Lord of glory. And what happened when he died? What broke? What ripped? All well, the children know, right? It was the curtain curtain of the temple and it was ripped from top to bottom and that means something because it means it was a divine act was it wasn't one of the priests that went in and started ripping it from the bottom god ripped it from top to bottom and god was saying this this holy of holies that you've been told to stay out of all these millennia well you can come in now because the sacrifice has been sacrificed the blood has been shed the way has been opened you can come back home into the presence of the Father. So if you turn to, um, I can't remember the word in, in English, Philippians. If you turn to Philippians, and you see in these first. Verses of chapter 2 of Philippians, the, the humiliation of Christ and that he emptied himself and that he was found in human form and he, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now look at 2 verse 9 of Philippians. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of Of God the Father. What is the Apostle saying? Every knee must bow. Every tongue must confess the name which is above every other name. Jesus is exalted into the very right hand of God and he sits on the throne of the universe and he is ruler. He is Lord of lords. He is King of kings. Now, who is this Jesus who ascended to the throne of the universe? Well, we know he's God. He's not just God. He's also true man. What we have in the ascension is the last Adam coming back into the presence of the Father. And with him, the entire new humanity, which belongs to him and which is united to him. If you look in. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 8 Paul describes this ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ as a victory parade of a Roman general when they came back victorious from the battle they would have their captives following them they would be throwing pieces of silver and gold to the crowds that were cheering and applauding you look at Ephesians 4 verse 8 and it says of our Lord Jesus Christ when he ascended on high He led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. The triumphant King of glory comes home. He comes into his own. He comes into his kingdom. And so when Jesus, on the day of the ascension, rose up from the disciples with his hands outstretched in blessing and disappeared into the clouds, he came to the very gates of heaven, And for the first time since Genesis chapter 3, the way to the Father was not closed. The door stood open. No gate dared close in his face. He came in as King of glory, as God of God, as very God of very God. He came home, but he also came as the last Adam, as the one who got things right, And as true man, with our flesh and blood, with a body like ours, except glorious with no sin, as true man. He didn't just step inside the doorway of heaven and kind of lean against the doorpost and think, wow, I'm in now. What do I do now? No, he walked straight to the middle. He walked right by those cherubim that tell sinners, stay away from God. Walked right by them. They prostrated themselves before him. And he sat down on the throne of God. He sat down. What does Hebrews say? After he made purification for sins, he sat down. Well, it's amazing. Because in the temple, there was no seat. In the Old Testament, the high priest would not dare to go behind the veil into the Holy of Holies and sit on the ark. He would die. He didn't belong there. But Jesus, he takes the temple and he puts it up on end. He makes it vertical. And what was a little model, a little picture, a little metaphor of the truth, suddenly he brings to reality. The whole book of Hebrews is about that. The whole book of Hebrews says, you know, all those ceremonies and and rituals and sacrifices, it was all pictures, it was all shadows, it was all like a, a model. But now we've got the real thing. Now we've got the way open back to the Father. And so open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10, for instance. Hebrews 10. And what does the Scripture say? Hebrews ten, nineteen. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Those are the pure hearts of Psalm 24 and our bodies washed with pure water. Those are the clean hands of Psalm 24. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir one up, uh, up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What's the, what's the, the apostle saying? He's saying there used to be something between us and God. It was a veil it said stay out. He says now there's something else between us and God. It's the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not dividing us. It's not pushing us away from each other. But in the flesh of our Lord Jesus, there is God and man together. He unites us back with the Father. He reconciles us. He opens up the way. And so we can walk by those cherubim that used to tell us to get lost. And we can say we're with him. We come in with the Lord Jesus into the heavenly places and we say we're with him. We're the bride. He's the bridegroom. We're the children coming into the presence of the Father. And that's why we can worship. And that's why we must worship in spirit and truth. That's why we don't have all kinds of decorations and all kinds of symbols all over this church building because we're in this beautiful building. It's comfortable, but we don't want to look at things here. We want to lift up our hearts. We want to go in spirit and truth into the very presence of God in heaven before the throne of the universe. That's what happens in public worship. Now, some of us may be thinking, well, that's very nice with Jesus. He got to go into heaven, but we're still stuck here on earth. That's not quite true. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. Ephesians 2, 6. Galatians, Ephesians 2, 6. What does the scripture say? He made us alive together with Christ, and look at verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. How does that work? How does that work? Well, think of when you fall into the lake in the winter, you fall through the ice and you're on the bottom of the lake, and you can't find the hole through which you fell. What's gonna to happen to you? You're gonna die. What do you desperately try to do? Do you try to stick your foot back up through the ice? Is that what you're gonna pay attention to? Is that what you focus on? It's not gonna help. If you manage to get your foot back up through the ice, you're still gonna die. You need your head to get out of the water, right? And once your head is out of the water, you're still in a bad situation. You gotta get out of that cold water. But the first step is important because the, the breath comes in through the mouth. And as long as the head is out of the water and you're breathing, the rest of the body's getting oxygen. And that's the picture of the church. The head is out of this sinful world. And the breath of God, the Spirit of God in him comes into this world of sin and brokenness and gives us the taste of newness of life. The Holy Spirit of God as we'll see in a few weeks' time, or next week, poured out upon the church. And so in Christ, because we're connected to him, we're united with him, like a head and a body, we are already in the heavenly realms. What does the Bible say about Jesus? It says that he brought, or he's bringing, many sons to glory. In the Old Testament, where did people pray towards? You remember Daniel? He 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 oriented himself towards Jerusalem, to the temple to pray, because that's where God's presence was, for God's people. What do we pray to now? Do you you kind of figure out where the church building is when you pray? I hope not. Do you kind of orient yourself towards Jerusalem, where the temple used to be? I hope not. We lift up our hearts to God in heaven, because that's where we're allowed to come in the Spirit. We come in prayer, we come in family and private worship, and even more delightfully, we come in public and corporate worship into the very heavenlies in the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We appear before the very throne of God. That's why Paul says, when he's talking about worship, he says, be careful how you do things because of the angels. He's not talking about the angels that come down and are in the building. There are angels in the building. But he's talking about what are the angels going to think up there in heaven. They know the holiness of God. They have the good sense to cover their faces before the brilliance of his glory. So we as children should not be careless about how we worship. Think of the angel, says Paul. So we, we can come in and we can go out as often as we like. Whenever we like. Because we belong. Because we are children of the living God. So this is important. As we study prayer and the catechism sermons, we need to remember that we are a child of God. You are loved. You belong. You are welcome in his presence. And it is good now, and it's just going to get better. Because one day, the last vestiges of the pandemic of sin will be scrubbed away from the universe. One day, heaven's going to come down to earth. One day, that garden city with gold and precious stones and rivers and the tree of life, paradise restored, will be here on earth, open to us. And we will see the glory of God and the face of Christ and children when when that day happens. You can run to the Lord Jesus and give him a huge hug. No social distancing necessary. And then we will live in glory. And we will move in glory. And we will have our being in glory as we live in the eternal and blessed and joyful and exultant glory that Christ has won for us. As children of the King of glory. Then... Finally, we will be home at last. Amen.